Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. It was neat to see you play, and it's fun to talk to you all these years later because you played with a lot of joy and you played with passion. And I've seen Dan Dicko hit some big shots in the NCAA tournament. <laughs> Every morning when I'm working out, I'm listening to your podcast. Keep up the great work. Well, you know, I got to salute you, man. Like, I've been watching you since I was in high school trying to mimic all your moves. I think there were a lot of kids who looked at Dan Dickow and said, Dan Dickow can play at this level, I can play at this level. Welcome to another episode of the ISO with myself, your host, Dan Dickow, and SB Live Sports on the Believe Podcast Network. Conversations throughout the world of sports, typically basketball. Today's is another coach that I've reconnected with over the last couple years as my broadcasting career um, continues to take me to new places. Somebody who recruited me at the University of Portland when I was a high school kid ended up not going there. Uh, but he has become a tremendous coach, both as a valued assistant at different stops and a tremendous Division II head coach for a number of years before getting back to the Pac-12 at Washington State. Current assistant to Kyle Smith, Jim Shaw coach. How is life in Pullman with year two of the rebuild in Pullman? Well, it's very cold this morning. And uh, this is probably the longest stretch of straight winter I've ever had. So it's a new experience for me. Well, that's interesting because with a lot of your stops as a coach, most of them are based in the Northwest. And we'll get into some of those. But you also spent a little bit of time at Oklahoma under Coach Kelvin Sampson. How, was, how do you stack up the Big 12 versus the Pac-12? And I know there's been some time differences between your, your run there. Um, but generally speaking, what are the differences in basketballs in those two leagues? Yep, there is a significant, a significant difference in a few areas. Um, the atmospheres in the Big 12 were a lot harder to play in. Um, I mean, I can just go right down the line. I mean, there was very few that weren't hard to play in. I mean, your places like Kansas State, hard to play in. Everyone knows Kansas, but Missouri at that time, really hard to play in. Oklahoma State with Eddie Sutton, really hard to play in. Texas Tech with Bobby Knight, hard to play in. So from an atmosphere standpoint, it was more difficult, more challenging in the Big 12. And then from a standpoint of we never had less than five ranked teams and we had as many as seven a couple of times. That was pretty unique. Um, it was just was big Monday versus this team ranked, uh, Saturday versus this team ranked and et cetera. The television exposure was a little more exclusive then. I mean, we literally, um, I mean, I'm from Washington and my parents got to watch a lot of Oklahoma basketball games between big Monday and big Wednesday and, and all this. So the television exposure nationally was, was really, really good. And then in the PAC 12, there's more NBA type talent. I mean, year in year out, there's more NBA players drafted from the PAC 12 than there is the big 12. So I would say more NBA level talent prospect players in the PAC 12, harder atmospheres and more television exposure in the big 12. And then at the time I was there, you had Bobby Knight in Lubbock, you had Eddie Sutton in Stillwater, you had a young Rick Barnes in Austin, you had a young Roy Williams in Lawrence, you had a young Quinn Snyder 
in Missouri. You had Kelvin at Oklahoma. So there were some really, really, really heavy punches being thrown at each other. Yeah, those are a tremendous, uh, that's a tremendous list of coaches that you mentioned uh, during your tenure uh, in the Big 12. But you also mentioned the players with the NBA-level talent in the Pac-12. And, and I've always, growing up on the West Coast myself, that was kind of the benchmark. You you wanted to be, if, if you had aspirations, goals, and dreams to play in the NBA, you kind of knew you were going to go to a Pac-10 uh, school at the time, now Pac-12. What, without getting too deep into it, there's a lot of talent. How come some of those teams don't get the recognition um, that some of the Big 12 teams get? Well, I think a few things. One is that, uh, first of all, going to the root of the NBA thing, I think there's, I mean, we had more, there was more NBA players from Pac-12 rosters on opening night this year than any other conference. And the ACC was a very close second. And then after that, it was a huge drop. And I think the reason there's that disparity is that all those other leagues overlap. So they're all almost in the same time zone, recruiting the same players. Whereas here, you're a little more removed. So, so not as many teams are crisscrossing for the top level players out here, just from a proximity standpoint. And then from an exposure standpoint for that conference, I mean, television is still your number one medium of, of exposure. And I think the national level uh i mean even though everyone has the big 12 network and the pac 12 network and the big 10 network their exposure on espn is is still a, a significantly uh more nationally recognized one than any of the conference networks stay on the the topic of coaches now and you mentioned all those big coaches uh in the in the big 12 you got your start and i didn't realize this until we began uh talking off air before recording, you got your start at the college level under one of the greats and maybe one of the greats that doesn't get as much national acclaim, uh, Ralph Miller at Oregon State. What was that like? And are there any stories that you can reflect back on uh, with fondness? Well, the tail end of uh, the run of, at Oregon State, which ended with us winning the league in 1990, and that was with Coach Anderson as the head coach. But Coach Miller, Coach Anderson – those guys, um, one of my very first big assignments was to organize Coach Miller's retirement. So that was an uh, incredible event and the amount of people that showed up. I mean, former players, Freddie Brown, John Johnson, all the former players from Oregon State and, and just uh, A.C. Green and the, the stories they told. And, and just to see the nostalgia and tradition all combined um, was something that I'll never forget. And and coaching Gary Payton uh, to this day, I mean, I've coached almost two dozen NBA players, which is a lot, but he's still the best player I ever coached. And the sellouts and winning the league in 1990. And, and uh, I mean, there was just many things that I still uh, remember fondly, but also utilize on a daily basis. Yeah, Gary Payton was one of my favorite players growing up because I was in the Northwest, went to a couple games at Gill, and uh, back then, between, between the teams with Peyton and the teams with Brent Berry, though, that gym was, was electric. There was a lot of energy. Hopefully, Wayne Tinkle can keep that going in the right direction and, and get that excitement back. But that's a special place. Uh, you then move up the road to University of Portland for an up-and-coming program. And you're a part of a coaching staff that gets that team, the Portland Pilots, to the NCAA tournament in, I believe it was 1996. Yep. So you've seen 
NCAA tournament teams early in your career at the big-time level like Oregon State and now kind of that up-and-coming mid-major type level, what was the biggest difference that you found in the excitement of getting to the NCAA tournament from those two levels? Well, this is going to sound crazy, and it dates myself a little bit, but at Oregon State, it was just kind of the what was expected at that time. It was just, I mean, between 80 and 90, they'd been the Pac-10 at the Times winningest program, seventh winningest program in the country, um, and it was just not taken for granted by any means, but at the same time, it was kind of the expectation, won the league five times in a 10-year period and never finished lower than third. So therefore, that was that was just what they were doing. For the University of Portland, it's still the only time in school history they've ever gone to the NCAA tournament. So it was exciting. And, and we really had an opportunity to go back to back. It was kind of, um, we played in the final the year previous to that and literally led the entire game and we're up double digits with like eight minutes to go. And a name from the past, John really went absolutely insane. I mean, he put on his, his good individual performance as any you'll ever see. And single-handedly on that night, carried them to a win over us. And then it turns around a year later, the same two teams playing in the final again. And, and I thought the, the year that they beat us that using the old NBA adage, four out of seven, that we probably would have beat them. But the following year, when, when, when we won, I think they probably would have beat us in the four out of seven. And we went through the conference tournament that year, the year we went to the NCAA tournament. In 120 minutes, we trailed less than three minutes. So it was amazing to just go through three games like that and really never be behind. So you go from uh, having that experience at, at University of Portland and seeing kind of uh, what it takes at that smaller level to have success. You, you move on uh, to a couple bigger time programs, Oklahoma, we had mentioned, University of Washington, St. Mary's, although it is in the same conference as Portland, isn't necessarily the same with the amount of attention and resources that are given uh, to the basketball program. What is harder, having continued success at a power conference or really turning around a program at a lower level conference? Winning at harder jobs is the hardest. Um, I mean, we had an amazing run at Oklahoma. We won the Big 12 tournament three consecutive years, which for anybody that's not named Kansas, that's really a heck of an accomplishment. And we went to the Sweet 16, the Elite Eight, the Final Four. And, and I think Kelvin Sampson's arguably the best coach in the country. But still winning at a, a school with the types of resources you have at your Oklahomas and your Washingtons, is it's not easy, but it's simpler than winning at a place where you either don't have any tradition, you have limited resources, a combination of both. Those things can be a little bit of a perfect storm, a little steeper hill to climb. You spent a number of years at University of Washington, kind of in their heyday, when they were kind of producing a lot of NBA players, as well as challenging for Pac-10, Pac-12 titles. Is there any player or any team in that time of your coaching career that really stands out? Well, that's a great question, bringing that up. During a nine-year period that I was there, we either won the regular season or postseason tournament five times. And in my last five years there, we won it four out of five, one of the two. And whenever we didn't win the regular season but won the conference tournament, we were top three in the league. So, I mean, we really had some really talented teams. I never coached 
a game at the University of Washington without a minimum of three NBA players on the team. Wow. Um, now, there was a couple times we had five. And I think we averaged about four. But uh, Mike Montgomery made the standing joke because the Sonics had left, which was devastating for a lot of people. And he said, well, they still have an NBA team in Seattle. They've just moved it up to Montlake. And so we had a tremendous amount of NBA players. Brandon Royce, the second best player I ever coached. He was a heck of a player. Um, Nate Robinson was a heck of a player. Isaiah Thomas, Terrence Ross, Justin Holliday, CJ Wilcox. I mean, the list goes on and on. Spencer Hawes, John Brockman, I don't, Quincy Pondexter. I don't want to leave anybody off, but it just keeps going and going and going. And, and at the end, by the time we left, the ones we had recruited that were coming in were Thibel and uh, DeJounte Murray. And I mean, it just, it was, uh, it, it was just an endless amount of, of guys that had amazing talent. And that was the first place. And really, uh, we had NBA players at Oregon State because Gary Payton certainly was an unbelievable player. And Scott Haskins was a first round draft pick. And then I recruited Brent Barry. That's my little uh, uh, start with guys like that. And uh, so we had NBA players there and we had Nahara at Oklahoma and, and and he was a special guy, a special player. But at Washington, we just had a conveyor belt of them. It just, it just a conveyor belt. So you've kind of recruited throughout different periods of, of the style of the game and, and what is working or what is popular at the time. You know, Gary Payton, Scott Haskins, you mentioned the, the UW guys. Uh, now at UW or Washington State, it looks like a couple guys might have a chance to get a long look. F.A. Abagidi uh, as a freshman kind of fits that description. When you're out evaluating and recruiting, what are the biggest things that you look for first to fit your program? But then what are the things that make you look at and say, that kid has a potential to be a pro down the road? Well, the first thing you have to look at is um, what is your system? How does he fit it? How does he impact it in a positive way? And systems all have similarities, but they're not all identical. At Oregon State, the time I was there, Coach Miller was – it was very defined. And then Coach Anderson, what kind of player they looked for. They wanted uh, length, speed, quickness on the perimeter because we pressed in the backcourt. It was even detailed down to big hands and small feet, um, <laughs> long arms, and uh, interchangeable parts. Uh, don't recruit a post player unless he can score with his back to the basket. Um, at Oklahoma with Coach Sampson, the identity of the program was that we were going to win with our toughness and our effort level. So you better recruit a kid that's pretty strong physically, but also pretty strong mentally because he's going to be challenged in ways that he probably hasn't been challenged before. At Washington, uh, Lorenzo had an NBA background, and it was guys that had a potential to play in the NBA. I mean, we really, I mean, they needed to have something about them that gave them potential to play in the NBA. So the system and what fits the system is, is very, very, a very important part of the process. Now, the biggest change in the game it, since I started was, even though there was a three-point line when I started coaching, not that old, it was not as utilized as it is now. So now the three-point line is more utilized. The shot clock has shrunk down some. So the game's turned into a more similar game to the pro game. But yet at the same time, you see teams and in, in your alma mater, Gonzaga is one of them, that still do a great job utilizing big guys. And the big guys kind of left at the doorstep right now because they're, uh, they're, there's not very many traditional fives playing in the NBA. So people 
think about, well, that's, you know, that's not something that they really want to recruit. And we have a freshman in Deshaun Jackson, who's just a traditional old school five man, but yet he has a chance to be a really good player. Want to give a brief moment to talk about our newest sponsor, eBay. Whether rare, dead stock, or the latest release, find the exact shoe you're looking for. As the original sneaker marketplace, eBay is the place to go to cop the pair you've been eyeing. With eBay's authenticity guarantee, your sneakers are meticulously inspected by independent professional authenticators. A team of experienced sneaker authenticators verify the box, logo, stitching, and dozens of other inspection points. Each sneaker also receives an authenticity guarantee tag that includes a digital stamp of authenticity. And it also protects sellers with a verified return process. And for sneaker sellers out there, eBay has eliminated selling fees on sneakers over $100, making it free to sell or flip your collection. Go to ebay.com sneakers today. eBay the world's best destination for discovering great value and unique selection. I, I like how you talk about similarities within programs and, and the way that each of those stops that you had kind of evaluated and recruited players and looked at players. You go from a time being a, a assistant coach at some really good programs to now you get your shot as a head coach at a division two program, Western Oregon. And you guys had a lot of success while you were there. I think one of the, the highest winning percentage uh, in division two during your tenure, how does your philosophy and, or how does your um, preparation change from being an assistant to a head coach? Because a lot of guys say they want to be a head coach. And then once they get their opportunity, it's overwhelming, but, with your winning percentage, that must not have been the case. No, I felt pretty uh, comfortable in, in what I wanted to do. There wasn't any confusion from day one. I think that helped our success, that everyone was on the same page knowing what we wanted to do. Um, in order to be a good assistant, you have to be a head coach that just happens not to have that title. You have to treat yourself that way. You have to treat the program that way. That'll help prepare you. And then... Um, you, you have to have a, a certain defi clearly defined way you want to play and make sure you can communicate that to where, again, no one is confused about anything you're trying to do. And when people ask me about some of the stops I've made, they'll say, hey, what was the most challenging thing? You guys went to the Sweet 16 four times at Washington or you went to the Elite Eight and Final Four at Oklahoma. Without question, the most challenging hill that we've uh, climbed is a in this basketball journey was winning 33 games twice at Western Oregon. That, that, that was a, you know, there's a lot of long bus rides. There's no, uh, you know, no one has NBA players for the most part. And, and so the margins are tighter. I mean, the first team we had that went to the final four uh, went 20 and two in league um, and 16 games were decided in single digits. So, so the margins are tighter and the success that those guys had there was something that, uh, I mean, that's the, that's the biggest hurdle any group of guys has climbed. I mean, the game we played to go to the final four, we were the only team in college basketball history at any level in the postseason to have zero turnovers. 
we had zero. Now we, we led the country that year in fewest of games. So, so your margins were tight and you had to make sure that you knew where you could gain an inch or two because the league we participated in is kind of like a BCS league in that Seattle Pacific and Western Washington and Central Washington and Alaska Anchorage, they have enormous traditions and way more resources than a place like Western Oregon does. So you had, uh, it was, it had a lot of parallels to Oregon State. I mean, it was, it was challenging, but you could be successful there, but you better be pretty, uh, pretty sure-footed on what you want to do and how you want to do it. So you mentioned some of the teams in the, in the Division II league, the GNAC here on the West Coast. Um, we have a lot of high school coaches uh, that listen to this podcast on the West Coast, and in particular in the Pacific Northwest. What many of those coaches and their players that they're coaching and the parents of those players and AAU programs, for, for some reason or other, have a negative connotation to Division II. I have seen the Division II level up close. I've called the, the title game for three or four years on Westwood One Radio, and I know it's a very high level of basketball. What would your message be to the current high school players, the parents, and the high school coaches that might think I'm holding off for a Division One opportunity um, because there is really good basketball at the Division II level? Well, I would say that I had zero zero knowledge of division two basketball when I took the Western Oregon job. I was a lot like these parents and the people you're describing. I just didn't know. You don't know what you don't know. And the thing that surprised me the most wasn't that there's good coaches. There's good coaches everywhere. It was, I didn't expect to see Suki Wiggs up in Alaska Anchorage. <clears throat> I didn't expect to see Dalton Hamas and Trey Dreschel and DeAndre Dixon at Western Washington. I didn't expect to see, uh, I can go on and on, uh, Khalil Shabazz, who's now at USF at Central Washington or Fuquan Niles. It was the caliber of players that were in the league that was surprising to me. And right away I realized, wow, you guys better not turn the ball over much because this could be a, a pretty big challenge. So the talent level that was on the floor and the thing is it's very parallel to the big sky. The WCC is a, a a notch up but I mean we played we scrimmaged Eastern Washington last year and and they won the league and, and Shantae's done a fantastic job there but man the top of the GNAC I think would compete pretty favorably with that conference uh, you know give and take here and there and so the level of talent that's playing would be the biggest surprise now some of it's had different journeys to get in there schools like Seattle Pacific can recruit because of its location and tradition a pretty traditional high school kid that uh, just wants to stay within the area in Western Washington and similar, you know, in a place like Western Oregon, you had to think outside the box a little bit more just for a variety of reasons. Uh, the tradition of a central Washington, you can uh, recruit pretty favorably there as well. So I was surprised by the caliber of talent. I knew there'd be good coaches. I just didn't expect to see the, the level of players there were. Let's talk about your current stop and in, in your current role at Washington State as uh, as head coach or as an assistant coach under Kyle Smith. I think Kyle's a tremendous job, uh, does a tremendous job. He did a really nice job at San Francisco before arriving in Pullman. His philosophy has been described before as nerd ball. How would you describe his philosophy that you guys are all trying to implement? Well, he utilizes 
analytics and numbers more than than anyone I've been around. Now, everyone has numerical equations to the things they do all the way back to Oregon State had a little system for evaluating players after every game and et cetera. But Kyle's got a unique background. His dad was a hedge fund broker and he's got an extensive numbers background. He went to Hamilton College. He's uh, coached in the Ivy League. I mean, he's a very, 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 very intelligent person who's taken some of his pre-athletic background and combined it into his coaching philosophy. So essentially the depth of which numbers are used is significantly more than any place I've been. And we utilized some of the, some similar stuff at various places, St. Mary's and, and Oklahoma, everyone utilizes some numbers to a certain point, but it's just a much, much deeper dive for lack of a better term in, in, in how he utilizes it. So with that deep dive dive into numbers as you work on a scouting report for an upcoming game you got to look at the numbers because that's what you guys kind of uh, use to help prepare but when you're watching game film what are the things that you kind of focus in uh, not only for your opponent but for yourselves uh, that will be important in the upcoming or upcoming games well um, there's different things like I, I focus more on our defense and, and, and again, coaches with, uh, utilizes numbers and we were number 200 and gosh, 80 or something in defense. And last year we jumped to 83 and this year right now we're 42. And I wouldn't have been aware of that. I, I mean, he, mean, he, you know, he studies the numbers. And so therefore, uh, making progress is the most important thing with numbers in the area that we've tried to make the most progress on that end of the court is simplify our mistakes in the sense of try to get back, try to make sure that we take people off the three-point line because the things that, uh, you know, the things that contribute to teams separating from you and, and you have to get close before you can beat them are, are layups and threes. And the thing that we haven't been able to solve is the turnover biscuit because that will also contribute to teams being able to get away from you. And then offensively, we'd really like to become a program that utilizes the three point line more than what we do right now. And, uh, and we've, we've struggled to, to, to make the steps there that coach wants to make starting with the fact we just turn the ball over too much. And we've got to get that thing solved before the offense can, can operate the way he wants it to. Having grown up in the Northwest, spent time at Oregon state, spent time at university of Portland, UW, Western Oregon, uh, Washington State now. How good is the basketball in this corner of the country? Extremely. That was one of the biggest advantages uh, that we had going for us at the University of Washington is that Oklahoma probably was the most uh, prestigious job I've ever worked at, name brand. There wasn't anybody I could call at any time that didn't know what the University of Oklahoma was, Boomer Sooner, et cetera, et cetera. But in terms of compiling talent, though it's never easy. It was simplest at Washington because within a hundred miles of you every year, you had a couple of pros. And so the level and caliber of basketball, I mean, I remember your recruitment and uh, I'm telling coach Chavez, I mean, this guy is a monster. And it was a 24th hour before Washington offered you. I remember Damon Stottlemyre's recruitment. Um, I mean, he actually even told us, hey, you know what, I'm just going to come to Oregon State and Arizona lost a kid and got him at the last minute. 
And he had recruitment, but nowhere near the level of the caliber of player because of where we're located. I think that can uh, impact the amount of people. It's just hard to get here. So we're about as far up in the corner as you can get, but the caliber of basketball here, I mean, when I went down to St. Mary's and was working with Randy and I was going around to local games, I'd say, I can get on a plane and go up to Seattle or Tacoma and see a lot better game than this. So, so uh, I mean, Terrell Brown, who's at Arizona now, was with me at Western Oregon for a semester. And I begged Big Sky coaches to take him. I did everything I could. And then finally, at the end, there was nothing. And I was like, what am I missing? Well, what I was missing was he was the fourth leading scorer on his high school team. He had Jalen Noel and God only knows who else on the team. So the caliber of players that are on those high quality teams is really good. And then there's always going to be a player in a pocket somewhere like where you're up there, whichever it be Shadle Park or, you know, local school there, the kid going to Boise this year, et cetera. So I would say the caliber of basketball here is extremely, extremely good. And the thing we complain about our weather probably helps with it. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I, I think that you've got a lot of really good points. And I would agree that the weather helps because growing up in the Portland, Vancouver area, there wasn't a lot to do when it was raining. I love the game, yeah. but that forced me back into the gym even more. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, it's kind of a catch 22. Give me a quick synopsis now on on Washington State, where you guys are at, where you hope to be, because you guys have shown a lot of promise in year two under uh, Kyle Smith and your leadership. Yeah, you know, it's it's small steps. Uh, we got here, they were, uh, we were firmly in the mid 200s last year. We got up into the 150 range this year. We're under 120 and the, the next big breakthrough has got to be the top 100. When you get into the top 100, then you become pretty relevant. But coach's model is more rooted in, doesn't mean we'll have the success, but in how Tony Bennett did it, he's a more traditional thinker. He prefers... Uh, just the sequential steps of a four-year or five-year program for guys. Uh, he prefers to do it with good students that are well-rounded. Um, I mean, his background at Columbia, at St. Mary's, it's Air Force Academy, those types of places. He believes in those types of kids and growing the program with those types of guys. Well, Coach, I appreciate the time. Uh, I know you probably have some film to break down, maybe some recruiting calls to make to, to players or coaches. So thank you for joining. Uh, it's been great to reconnect um, now that you're back at Washington State in, in the Pacific Northwest. So appreciate the time. No, you're welcome. Thanks, Dan. We'll see you soon. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.